0: Mark 9, verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, that is Jesus and Peter and James and John, who'd been up the mountain of transfiguration, when they came to the rest of the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Three weeks today, we move back to the center of the city, to Pollock Halls. Three weeks today, we begin a new series right through the term in the Acts of the Apostles, the title of the series, The Church Begins. This, as I have often said, has been our holiday home over the summer, and it's been a privilege to be here. And for the next few weeks, before we go back there, And pick up in earnest that baton that is gospel evangelism in the city. What I want us to do is be prepared for that. And hence our study of these two chapters in Mark's Gospel 9 and 10. The major theme of these two chapters is discipleship. And discipleship simply means what is it like to follow the Lord Jesus? What does authentic Christian discipleship look like for an individual or a church? What is the kind of way of living through which and in which the power of God is able to manifest itself? Now the first half of Mark's gospel is all about Jesus and who he is, the chapter's 11 on to the end and 16 again are all about the identity of Jesus. But here in 9 and 10, the focus is on following him. And so, for example, chapter 8, 34, just glance at that with me. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, the life of discipleship, he must take up his cross and follow me. Jesus has just taken Peter and James and John up the mountain to teach them a valuable lesson, to encourage them. The end of our passage that we just read, verses 28 and 29, at the end of this episode, he takes the disciples apart. It's like a little seminar in discipleship. That's a, a technique Mark uses to signal his intent. It's about discipleship. And then next week, as we'll see in how timely next week's, Passages to the contemporary church in the West today. Serve. Affirm other ministries. Deal with sin in your life. So this is all about discipleship. I hope you can see that in Mark's text. I used the illustration last week of children going to school after the holidays. Most of the kids are back now. Some of you are still... Children at home, but they go back in the next couple of weeks. And and what's the first lesson a P1 teacher teaches their class? For those of you who are P1 teachers, I have no idea. But here's my go at what that first lesson is. Tell me afterwards if I'm wrong. Listen to the teacher. That's probably right. I suspect some of you who are teaching S1. (laughs) Or S6. And of course, that's the point, isn't it? These lessons in discipleship are primary one. And for the maturest Christian. The lessons are essentially simple, radical, searching, but they are essentially simple. Here are the lessons Jesus is teaching them and us. Lesson one last week, listen to the Lord. We do well as a church. To listen to Jesus in his word. Lesson two this week. Talk to the Lord. Pray to him. Pray to him as you look out and minister in this kind of world that Mark describes. Listen to him. Talk to him. Lesson next week. Serve him. Simple, profound, yet searching lessons. Let me just nail down the principles in our life as a church. I I keep saying Sunday by Sunday that we are in a pivotal moment in our life as a church. I feel very much in a pivotal moment as your minister. Here we are on the road. The disciples were with Jesus on the road. Uncertain road. And he teaches them these essential lessons. Listen. Pray. Depend on me like you never have before. And serve. I really do believe, as a church family, we have this moment given to us by God. For when we have all our security around us again, maybe we never will, we'll learn to depend on ourselves again and not on the Lord. So here we go. Three points on the sheet, there's always three. But this time there really is. Firstly, a disordered world in the grip of evil. That's a not a particularly cheery title. But it's not a particularly cheery world in which we live. Mark is describing the world in which we live. It's characteristic. And the scene he describes in his little cameo portrait as one of disorder and chaos there is a great crowd. Crowds in the Gospels typically symbolise confusion, pressing and clamouring, demanding from Jesus, as one writer puts it, crowding out the Lord's priorities. Think of the vast crowds in this city. You know, when you go into town during the festival, it really irks you if you're a resident. Vast crowds. And there are the teachers of the law, the religious leaders of the day. There they are in verse 14. What are they doing? They are arguing, disputing. Disputing, arguing, and contradicting are their principal activities as they seek to undermine the gospel and the Lord Jesus. Jesus inquiry as to the subject of the argument verse 16 is not answered by the disciples or the religious leaders he kind of throws out the question what are you arguing about to this little group in the front and suddenly from the back this man calls out someone from the crowd verse 17 answered him and all of a sudden in this little picture of the world and its disorder the focus is on a family in its desperate need Teacher, I brought my son to you. And Jesus, of course, was up the mountain. For he had a spirit that makes him mute. Whatever it seizes him, it throws him down. And he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. As a sparing father, his son's life destroyed. A desperate situation of human need. Now, this is a picture of the world in which we live. A fallen, a broken, a disordered world. The mass of Humanity. The mass of humanity in our globe today, the mass of humanity in our city, the mass of humanity in Congo-Brazzaville. Fearful, running this way and that, searching for answers. In our world, disputing and arguing and strife on a global scale, on a national scale, on a local scale, on a family scale. Disappointment, despair, and brokenness and sadness. Now, is this really a picture of the world in which we live, or is it exaggerated and extreme? Now, I'd suggest to us that the only difference between the world in which we live in Edinburgh and what we see here in Mark's gospel is that when Mark writes, he strips the veneer away and sees things for how they truly are. Janice, you go to West Africa and uh, I admire you with all my heart for your courage and your vision. We'll all remember today, I suspect, Jen. You will go to a culture where perhaps the surface veneer is less than here. You will see the plight of humanity and the need of humanity and the fear and the discouragement and the disappointment. Whether we are in West Africa or Western Europe, this is the world in which we live, the mass of humanity facing a lost eternity. And in our city, behind every door, every single door, battles and struggles and fear that is the world in which we live. And the great thing about the Word of God is that unlike the world in which we live, the Word of God tells us how it really is. Now, there's something really important that Mark the writer wants us to see. He wants us to see what, or I guess more particularly, who the driving force is in the world. He wants us in a sense, to get behind the veneer and then behind that veneer to the root of it all. And behind it all is the devil who seems to hold the upper hand. And it's really important we see this in his description of the disordered world at the root of it that is evil power. Now, we see that most clearly in the demon-possessed boy. In this instance, the cause of his awful physical symptoms is demon possession. The presence of evil, the presence of the demonic, is very overt in the gospel narratives. And the reason for that is that in the presence of the divine, the physical Lord Jesus, God in the flesh, the demons, the demonic, expose themselves. Jen, when you spoke to us in our prayer meeting about the culture where you'd be working in Africa, you described a culture where spiritual evil is more evident. And it's no different here. It is just masked. Now, as Andy read, the New Testament makes it very clear that in the world in which we live, it's a world in the grip of spiritual forces of evil. You know, when you read a passage that Andy read in Ephesians, You can just kind of go over your head. Let me describe to you the city of Edinburgh this morning. Finally, be strong in the Lord. This is to Christians. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against, this is what's going on in our city, the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, the cosmic powers, this present darkness. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Or 1 Peter 5 8, be self controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Or 2 Corinthians 4, Paul is speaking about those who do not see, understand who Jesus is. Paul says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded their eyes. Are we convinced? Jesus' words in verse 19 sum up the scene, of faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? I think his words are sweeping in their compass. He's talking about the, the, the crowd. He's talking, I guess, about the religious leaders who would not receive him as their Messiah. But in his mind, perhaps, principally, are his would-be apostles. How long am I going to be with you? He's thinking in his mind. About 50 more days before he goes to his Father and the Spirit comes. Will they see, will they grasp the nature of the world in which they are going to witness? Will we, in our pivotal moment, learn this final lesson? That if we are to make progress spiritually in this world, we need to talk God, we need to pray with all our hearts, because we cannot do anything in our own strength. So that's Mark's picture of the world in which we live. It is a disordered world in the grip of evil, And uh, it's very striking in Mark's description how helpless the disciples were. They were, in a sense, caught in the middle of this clamoring crowd. Helpless, unable to help this man and his son, unable to respond to the arguments of the religious leaders, and then Jesus appears, and they all go past the disciples to Jesus. That was the only wise move of the crowd. How disappointed they must have been. And I wonder just how much that rings through of our sense of where we are as a church in our nation, What does our country see when it looks on? Does it see disputing and arguing and a powerless body devoid of conviction? Do people come to the church for help and find none? And is there perhaps a sense of disappointment within the church? Is there perhaps a sense of disappointment amongst ministers, amongst elders, amongst members, that we simply are unable, seemingly, to address even to a tiny extent the rapid acceleration into secularism in our nation. We're just not able to do it. Is that not a realistic picture of our world? Second, and uh, by wonderful contrast, an omnipotent lord who overpowers evil there's that uh, wonderful thing about the lord jesus earlier in mark you remember the the storm everyone's flapping around he's asleep which i have to say if i were a disciple would worry me <laughs> nonetheless he is asleep Even in his sleep, he is omnipotent. He gets up, he's calm, and in a word, the sea is flat. And he heals in Mark 4, 5, a demon-possessed man, a bit like this child here, this boy. Then a sick woman, and then the daughter of Jairus he raises from death to life the word. And in contrast to the confusion and the clamoring of the crowd here, the Lord Jesus enters the stage. And having despaired of those around him who fail to see the reality of what's going on, he says, bring the boy to me. Now, yes, Jesus is teaching us a lesson about discipleship here, and we'll come to that as we close a lesson about depending on him in prayer but he never ever teaches us lessons forensically or devoid of compassion. He heals this boy and helps his dad come from weak faith to strong faith out of love and compassion. But what Mark is teaching us here in the Lord Jesus dealing with This boy's demon possession is about conflict between the prince of this world, the devil, who possesses this boy and his dad's heart in unbelief, and the prince of glory who has come to destroy the stranglehold of the devil in this world. Now, Mark, as a writer, is short and sharp. His gospel is half the length of Luke and Matthew. And yet this little episode Mark 9:14 to 29 is twice the length of its equivalence in Luke and Matthew. And the, the the extra material in Mark is a conversation between the dad and Jesus, and that conversation does two things. One, it enlarges the destructive power of the devil and his wreaking havoc in this family. It shows you just how powerful the devil is. And secondly, it enlarges the greater power of the omnipotence of the Prince of Glory of the Lord Jesus. Just look at the destructive nature of this boy's condition. It robs him of speech, verse 17. Verse 18, whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. Verse 20, they brought the boy to him, to Jesus. When the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. He fell to the ground, rolled about, foaming at the mouth, Verse 21, Jesus asked the Father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, it has often cast him into fire, into water to destroy him. There's the mark of the devil. He's a murderer, death, destruction. But now this demonic power comes up against a greater power, and that is divine power. Verse 25, when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, literally running towards him, I think uh, Jesus did not want to see uh, the crowd to see the actual demonstration of power, lest they trust him for the wrong reasons. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out terribly and convulsing him, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead, but he is not dead. How do you know? Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. Chaos displaced by order, human dignity restored. And the three Greek verbs here, took and lifted and arose, are the same as those in the description of Jesus raising Jairus' daughter from the dead. Mark's point, I think, is that the power needed to dislodge Satan is the same order of power that raises the dead. And then the father... He comes to faith. This is not a this is not a case study in the nature of faithing faith. This man's faith is is weak and fragile as all ours is. And Mark's point, I think, is that the power it took to dislodge Satan from his possession of that child is the same power it took to lead that man from being there. being here trusting in the Lord Jesus with all his heart. Now, let's come to the lesson for discipleship as we close, which is Mark's primary purpose. You see the picture he's built up? Now, please believe me, Not because of me, but because God's Word says this. This is the world in which we live in this city. Out there in the city, there is disorder and chaos. And behind it all, there are spiritual forces of evil. And the protagonist, the prince of this world, the Satan, the devil. Yes, he has been defeated at the cross but he works powerfully until the Lord Jesus returns. Second day, Mark has shown us the omnipotent Lord who alone is able to conquer Satan. And then Jesus takes Peter and James and John and Thomas and Matthew and all the others into this little room, and he teaches them a vital lesson for their future ministry. Let's read these two verses. Verse 29, When he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Jesus had given them authority to cast out demons. Chapter 6. Chapter 3. But they could not do it. Why could we not do it, Jesus? Answer, this kind can come out only by prayer. What is he saying to them? You could not do it because you sought to do it in your own strength. You could not make progress in this dark world for the gospel because you sought to exercise that authority which I had given you in your own strength without me. You forgot that the power comes from me. And I need you to learn that because I'm soon going to go and the Spirit will come and you will not see me. I will not arrive on the scene and help you out. Let me come forward to the church in the 21st century in Scotland. Why could we not do it? Why could we not make spiritual progress against the tide? Why? Or Jen. Sometime in your time in Congo, Brazzaville, you will ask that question, why? Why are we not making any progress? And Jesus turns to us and to Jen, and particularly, I think, to the church in the Western world. And he says, you are not making spiritual progress because you are doing this in your own strength. You need to depend on me. You need to depend on my power. So in our evangelism, what is evangelism all about? Is it about learning apologetics? Is it about learning the ABC of the gospel and persuasively with our rhetoric explaining that to people? It is not primarily about that. Evangelism is about the Lord Jesus by his Spirit dislodging the prince of this world from someone's heart. Do we need help with that? We cannot make progress in evangelism in our own strength. We need to pray. As we seek to build Chalmers Church to reach this city with the gospel— what are we up against? Will we be opposed? I would say that as uh, pivotal this moment is, as exciting as I sense this moment is, so also do I sense the greatest degree of opposition to that progress I have ever felt. As we seek to find a building to build this church in this city, will we be opposed? We cannot make progress in our own strength. We need to pray. As the gospel partnership in this city seeks to train leaders, to multiply churches, what are we up against? We cannot make progress in our own strength. We need to pray. Jen, as you go to Congo Brazzaville, those of you from Wycliffe here, we welcome you in the Lord. Wycliffe's global vision is not about primarily... Gifted linguists, Wycliffe's global vision is to take the sword of the Spirit into spiritual darkness, and they cannot do that in their own strength. As our lives, as families, individuals living this world, what are we up against? In every home, the battles, the struggles, the strife, who is behind it all? We need to pray. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. We cannot make progress in our own strength. We need to pray. And so our devotional lives... Suddenly, take on a whole new realm of necessity. Our family prayer times take on a whole new realm of significance, and I warrant there are half a dozen of us here who've got that sussed. And it's not the person you're looking at. And our church prayer meeting, Sunday morning, Sunday evening. Once a month. It's a straight ratchet in God's Word. I think we can spiritualize it away. The Lord Jesus says to us, if you want to make real spiritual progress, you need to depend on me through prayer. And you need in prayer to avail yourselves of the power of God to dislodge Satan. Satan. To advance. So there's our lesson for discipleship. Last week, listen. Will you listen to the Lord like you've never listened before? And will you talk to the Lord like you've never talked to him before? Ask him to open people's hearts. Ask him to build our church family with people who are not Christians. Ask him for a building. Ask him for Jen, for Wycliffe, for their vision. And if we don't pray, then we'll find ourselves saying with the disciples, why could we not do it? And if our country begins to pray, one of you this week when I visited, you said to me, What do you think about praying for revival? Well, if the church in our country needs one thing, we could do worse than this. Jesus says, Talk to me. Pray, because you cannot do it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these vital lessons for life and ministry. And Lord, it's this pivotal moment in our church family. To the ministers, to the elders, to the members of this church family, Lord, teach us to listen and teach us to talk to you and pray. May we lay hold of the opportunities to pray and therein express our dependence on you for all things. And may the power of God the power of a reigning, omnipotent Savior, the power to dislodge Satan, the power to open blind eyes, the power to melt hard hearts, the power to make progress in this city, the power to give us a building, the power to turn things around and halt the drift, The power here, the power in Congo, Brazzaville. Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to talk to you with all our hearts. And help us not to spurn this pivotal moment in our life as a church. And our great confidence is that we will not because you are tenacious and gracious and compassionate and gentle and caring of us and with us. And so we commit ourselves as a church family. And Jen, again, very lovingly, into your strong and capable and powerful hands. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.